probably is. But all them old people just laugh. They know. I said it. <laughs> We've been talking about bad days for the past few weeks. and We've said that everybody has them. Everybody has those days when, when nothing goes right, nothing goes our way. And, and we've acknowledged, acknowledged the reality that, that some people see their life as nothing but a series of bad days, one bad day after another. But we've taken a look into the lives of some people from the Bible, and people who had bad days themselves. And we've learned something. We've learned that, that God can go around or He can go through any bad day we might face to accomplish His purposes if we will make ourselves available and be obedient. Availability and obedience, you can't beat that combination. We're going to wrap up our How to Survive a Very Bad Day series today with a, with a story that will be just uh, real familiar to anybody who's ever been to Sunday school or vacation Bible school. Uh, it's just one of those stories that always seems to get told to kids because it's a, it's a dramatic story. It's a very compelling story. It's the story of L Daniel in the lion's den. Now, you want to talk about a bad day. You know, when I was a, a kid growing up in, in Sunday school, uh, they taught us a little song. Anybody else ever learned Dare to be a Daniel? Anybody? Dare to be a Daniel. Anybody? Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. I, I can't believe that you just left me out there hanging. <laughs> no, 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 stop. You can't make it up to me now by clapping after you let me sing all by myself. <laughs> We'll see, Don. <laughs> through Daniel's bad day, just as we've seen through all these bad days that we've looked at, we're, we, we see that God really is in control. And that's the key this morning. I mean, we're going to see that Daniel was brave and, and that he was a man of integrity. He was a man of prayer. He was a man who trusted God in, in all things. But the point of the story is that he had all those things because he recognized who is in charge of the universe, and he behaved accordingly. So we're going to spend most of our time this morning in Daniel chapter 6. You might want to turn over there in your Old Testament. If you have your Bible with you this morning, we're going to do our best to put some scriptures up on the screen for you today as we go along. The first thing I want to do, though, is, is just take a real quick run through the first five chapters of the book of Daniel to kind of bring us up to speed, to kind of get us to to where we want to spend our time today. And in, in chapter 1, Jerusalem has been conquered by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians have carried off a lot of valuable stuff, a lot of the treasure, a lot of the valuable items from the temple. Uh, but the most valuable thing that the Babylonians have carried off is their sons and daughters, their children, the children of Jerusalem, the children from the wealthiest royal families are carried off back to Babylon. And the king of Babylon, for reasons that we are not real clear in the Bible, wants to put them all on a special diet. Basically what he wants to do is feed them the king's diet. 
He wants to feed them the same food that he gets served uh, at the royal table. But Daniel and three of the other Hebrew young men, their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There you go. See, you, got, you felt bad about leaving me hanging before, so you... But for whatever reason, they decide they're not going to eat the food from the king's table. They are just going to eat vegetables. Now, pause right here just for a second. We don't know why they decided just to eat vegetables. We, we, we don't know why. Some people say, well, the king was serving them stuff that the Jews weren't supposed to eat. We don't know that. It doesn't say that in the Bible. Okay. Some people will go to this text and try to make a case for being a vegetarian. Some people will go to this little snippet of text out of the Bible and try to put people on a Daniel fast. Hey, if you want to do a Daniel fast, have at it. I will eat your steak for you. Okay? I'll eat your barbecued ribs. You, you know, eat sawdust for three months or however long a Daniel fast lasts. I don't know. But you can't, we cannot make a case for being a vegetarian from this passage of Scripture. Now, you, we could debate the merits of vegetarianism all day long if you want to. I don't, I don't care. I'm a meat eater. I'm, if I'm anything, I'm a porkitarian, okay? But if you want to be a vegetarian, I will support you to the hilt in that until you start trying to make that the only way anybody ought to eat and try to put some kind of spiritual spin on it and say, well, that's how Jesus would eat. Not true. So we don't know why. I, I'll tell you what I think. And I'll tell you that this is my opinion. I think Daniel, I think these other Hebrew men who were from the royal family in Jerusalem, I think they understood that their families back in Jerusalem were going through a very difficult time, that food was scarce, that their diet was not diverse, that they were on the edge of starvation. And in solidarity to them, they said, we're not going to eat this rich food. We're not going to eat this diversity of diet that comes from the king's table. We're going to just eat vegetables. Makes as much sense to me as anything. But the man that was in charge of feeding them had kind of come to like Daniel and these other guys. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, I'm not going to, you know, have the king walk in here six months from now to inspect everybody. And you be, you know, scrawny and pasty and sickly because you haven't eaten the good food. Daniel says, just put us to the test. Let us eat what we want to eat. Feed these other guys the king's diet and see who looks the best. And you know how it came out, right? Daniel the other Hebrews were healthier than the young men that had eaten the king's diet. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, Daniel gets called on to interpret a dream for the king. He just nails it. I mean, he just nails it. It, it was a message from God to the king about the, about the kingdoms and the empires that were going to come along in the future. Now, could, you could see how that information would be advantageous, helpful to a king, right? And, and the king is just thrilled uh, that, that Daniel helps him with that. He's so grateful and impressed that in Daniel chapter 2, verses 48 and 49, it says, The king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all his wise men. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon while Daniel remained in the king's court. And that's chapter 2. Chapter 3, in another very familiar story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the king's gold statue. The king has built a 90-foot-tall gold statue and said everybody has to bow down to it. And these Hebrews who worship the one true God said, not us. 
And so they got to spend the night in the fiery furnace. But something happened while they were in there. They got a visit from Jesus 600 years before he showed up on this earth in human form. And what they found out is that even in a fiery furnace, it's pretty cool when Jesus shows up. Their clothes weren't even singed. The Bible says they didn't even smell like smoke. You understand that the men who threw them in were killed because the furnace was seven times hotter than it had ever been burned before. And there wasn't a spot on them. And in Daniel chapter 3, verse 30, it says, The king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. Chapter 4. The, the king of Babylon um, is kind of making a confession. should say the former king of Babylon is making a confession because what happens is he has come under the judgment of God and he's lost his mind and he lost his kingdom. Now, eventually, he turned to God, and he got his mind back, but he never again sat on the throne in his nation. And that's chapter 4. Chapter 5 begins with the words, many years later. The king that followed, the king that lost his mind, is on the throne, and he's having a party with all of the important people in the kingdom, when suddenly a human hand appears and begins to write on the wall. Now, I don't know how you picture that. I always picture that hand as being kind of big, you know? Maybe... Maybe a little bigger than the hamburger helper hand, and plus it had five fingers, I think. And, but maybe not quite as big as the weird number one foam hand, okay? Somewhere in between there. But anyway, this, this, this hand writes on the wall, and to say that they were scared is an understatement. The Bible says that the king's knees knocked, that he turned pale, and his legs gave way underneath him. He fell over. He just fell down because he was so scared. And he called together, listen to this, he called together all of his advisors and all of his wise men. And, he's going to cover all the bases, he, he reached out to, you know, to uh, 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 Miss Cleo and all those folks too. He had every enchanter and every astrologer and every fortune teller that he could round up to, to interpret what this hand had written on the wall. It says this in Daniel chapter 5 verse 7. Whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And of all people, his mother-in-law is the one who remembers Daniel. Now, I don't remember him inviting the witches, but... You, uh, you single guys, it, they're not all like that, just most of them. Um, <clears throat> but his mother, all the men are trying not to laugh, and all the ladies are like. <clears throat> his mother-in-law reminds the king about Daniel. In another king, when the other king was here, this, this guy nailed these kind of situations. I mean, he just got them. And so he sends for Daniel, gives him a shot at it. Now, there's a point here that I think sheds some light on both Daniel and the king. And, and here it is. Daniel doesn't shy away from giving the king a bad report. He's got bad news. 
Daniel comes in, sees the writing on the wall. He understands what it means. It was probably written in Hebrew, possibly Aramaic, but most likely Hebrew. He reads it as a Hebrew, one who was raised and educated in Hebrew schools. It's bad news. But he doesn't try to spin it. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He just tells the king, your kingdom has been measured and has come up short. It has not measured up. And so your reign is going to come to an end very soon. It turned out to be very, very soon. It happened that very night. And another kingdom is going to be raised up and divided into two separate kingdoms. And amazingly, the king does not do what kings normally did when someone brought them such a message. Right? I mean, that's where we get the expression, don't kill the messenger. The kings would execute the messenger that brought them bad news. But in this case, the king actually keeps the promise he had made. And in Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 29, it says, Then at Belshazzar, that's the king, Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes. A gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So by the time Daniel... His story opens up in chapter 6. He has worked for three kings in two kingdoms. And here's what we read about him in Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces. And he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire kingdom. Now, I want to make sure that we get this before we go on. Daniel has done everything right for years. Don't miss that. He's done everything right for years. From the time he was brought out of Jerusalem to to Babylonia, he has been faithful. He's been knowledgeable. He has excelled in his job and in his responsibilities. He has been honored and promoted over and over again. You know what? He's even been worshipped, at least temporarily. Look, at the the end of... uh, was it chapter 2? Yeah. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He, he made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, um, just a, a, um, as well as the chief over all his wise men. Uh, if you back up, to verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him. And he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. So Daniel has done everything right for years. So get this. Bad days don't just come on us when we mess up. Bad days don't just come on us 
when we fail to measure up or when we just plain fail. Sometimes you can do everything right and still have a bad day. You can do everything right and still have a bad day. Daniel's is coming. And no, it isn't fair. It, it isn't just. It isn't right given the way that he's conducted himself and the way he's done his job and, and, and the benefit and the help that he's been to king after king after king. But it happens. And this morning I want us to see that Daniel comes out victorious on the other end of his bad day because he never forgot that God was in control and he always did the next right thing. That's his life. God's in control. And he always did the next right thing. The bad day begins in verse 4. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius. We are all in agreement, we administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. Flattery is the oldest trick in the book. They just flatter the king. They appeal to his ego. He's already the king. Uh, he's, the, he's the highest ranking person, most important person in the kingdom. He's the guy who, whatever he says, goes. If he wants something, he gets it. If he wants something done, it gets done. So what's left? Well, they say, how about this, king? We want you to be God for a month. And we think you ought to make it a law. And that sounds good to the king. And verse 9 says he signed the papers, putting it into effect. Verse 10. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room uh, with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. <laughs> what a crime. But that's what they went and reported. They went and told King Darius what Daniel was doing. Now see, they have manipulated the situation and they have put the king in a very difficult spot. The law is the law. He had signed it himself. But he loved Daniel. He thought highly of Daniel. There was no one in his kingdom that he trusted more. He had big plans for Daniel. But the king also understood that if the kingdom and the king was going to have any credibility, the law has to be enforced. And so I'm going to read a kind of a lengthy passage of Scripture here, provided I can see it. Let's start in verse 16. So at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. 
The king said to him, may your God whom you serve so faithfully rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seal of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? Look at verse 21. Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to the lion's den to shut the mouths of the lions so that they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. He had them thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. The lions leapt on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. I I believe there are so many lessons we can learn from Daniel's story. Uh, Things that will help us when we face our own bad day. Let me tell you something. If you haven't had a bad day, one's coming. If you have had a bad day, another one's coming. And there's so much we can learn from Daniel, but I want us to focus on three things this morning. Here's the first one I want us to see. On a bad day, we need to check our attitude and maintain our integrity. We need to check our attitude and maintain our integrity. These other leaders wanted to discredit Daniel because they were jealous of him. But you know what? His reputation was so flawless, there was nothing for them to expose. They, they, they were trying to, to, to seize him, but there was nothing for them to grab onto. Now, verse 3 in the New Living leaves a, a little something to be desired, I think. It says that Daniel had great ability. If you're reading another translation, it might have said something like, he had an excellent spirit. Some translations say a surpassing spirit. They're talking about his attitude. They're talking about his attitude. In spite of the fact that he is a captive, don't miss that, folks. He is a captive long since removed from his homeland. In spite of the fact that he's probably about 85 years old, now, that wakes us up, doesn't it? Because we thought he was a kid, didn't we? Isn't that how we, that's what, see what Sunday school, vacation Bible school has done to us? We thought he was a kid. But listen, he was when he left Jerusalem. He was about 15 years old. But the historical timeline tells us that at least 70 years have passed. Now, I don't mean to shake you up. You're, you're looking at me like Charlie Sheen's public relations manager. You know, you're like, But he's still in that situation, going through what he's been through. He still has a positive attitude about life, about his job, about his responsibilities. Hey, where does it say that we have to get cynical and sour and grumpy the older we get? Where? 
I was, I was telling somebody the other day I had to get up at 5.30 in the morning to take our little puppy out. That person asked me, did, did you wake up grouchy? I said, no, I let her sleep. <laughs> no, not really. My, my Vic is a beautiful, positive person just not at 5.30 in the morning. Daniel, on the other hand, kept his enthusiasm into his 80s. Enthusiasm. You know where that comes from? It comes from two words put together. In, E-N, which means in, I-N, and theos, which means God. In God. That's where Daniel's enthusiasm came from. He was in God. And I want to tell you something. That kind of excellent, surpassing spirit can propel us through a bad day. But there's something else. It's in the last part of verse 4 where it says that Daniel was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Hey, that means he was known on the job as a straight arrow. Right? He could be trusted. He wasn't going to try to get out of work. He was going to do his job. He was going to work hard. He, he wasn't going to steal. He was a person of integrity. That meant that he was honest and trustworthy even when no one was watching him. Now, we've got to ask ourselves a question. Does that describe me when I'm working on my job? See, when his enemies decided that Daniel needed to lose his position... They pulled out all the stops. I mean, they left no stone unturned. They, they, they had him followed. They checked his cell phone records and looked at his bank statement. They, 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 uh, they read his email. They looked to see which sites he was visiting on the Internet. They were trying to dig up garbage from his past, but they couldn't find anything wrong with him. The only thing they could find out about him was that he loved God too much. Isn't that something? I know people who have, who have said to me, well, Pastor, I, just, you know, I can't really be faithful like that. I can't, I can't live like that and advance in my career. Well, then you need a different career. Daniel was one of the most successful prime ministers in the history of the world. His job was not just something he did to put food on the table to pass the time five days a week, he saw his job as a platform from which he could demonstrate his faith in God. Folks, two, uh, not 2,000, about a, uh, 700 years later, Paul is going to say, we work not for a man, not for a paycheck, not for a company, we work as unto the Lord. Your job is a platform to proclaim your faith in Christ. Are we doing that? When people look at us, can they say, there goes a faithful, honest, hardworking person who loves Jesus. Can they say that about us? They can if we're keeping our attitude in check and maintaining our integrity. Well, here's the next thing we learned from Daniel. This is basic. You don't get any more basic than this. On a bad day, we need to pray. On a bad day, we need to pray. When, when Daniel learned that it was suddenly against the law to pray, if he'd been like some of us, you know, he probably would have said, well, 
I don't want to cause any trouble. I'll just pray in my heart. Yes, that's how I think Daniel sounded. He was from southern Jerusalem. I mean, you don't have to get down on your knees to pray. You, you don't really have to pray out loud. But he didn't do that. Daniel considers the consequences, I think, very carefully. And he breaks the law and prays anyway. And he didn't make a big public display of it. He didn't make, a, make it a constitutional fight. He didn't sue anybody. He just prays. He opened the windows of his room toward Jerusalem and prayed. He was not ashamed or afraid to be seen or heard praying. Hey, remember, Daniel is old and he's smart and he's experienced. You think he couldn't see a setup? You think he couldn't recognize a setup? He prayed anyway. That was his devotion to God, you can have my position. You can have my job. You can have my reputation. I'm going to pray anyway. When was the last time somebody caught you praying? If our government suddenly issued a law saying you couldn't pray for 30 days, how many of us would even miss it? There's two things about Daniel's prayer life that can help us with ours. The first one is this. Daniel had a specific place to pray. He prayed in the room. He opened the windows toward Jerusalem. Now, now listen, at the time, Jerusalem was just a pile of rocks. It had been destroyed. But Daniel wasn't praying to Jerusalem. He was by faith praying to the God who could rebuild and who would restore Jerusalem. He had a designated place to pray. Where's yours? Hey, in the car on the way to work, that's a great place. Maybe it's at the kitchen table after the kids are off to school. But find a place where you can get alone with God every day and talk to Him. Here's the second thing. Daniel had a regular time to pray. He did it three times a day, the Bible says. He, probably following Jewish custom based on Psalm 55, 17, which says, Morning, noon, and night I cry out in my distress, and the Lord hears my voice. Have a regular time set aside to meet the Lord in prayer. And then do it. Do it every day. The most important thing about Daniel's prayer life is found in verse 10, though, where it says he kept on praying just as he had always done. Just as he had always done. For, for Daniel, prayer was a regular, consistent habit. It wasn't some emergency mode that he had to jump into when trouble came his way. He prayed regularly every day. Samuel Chadwick would write, Years later, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing of our prayerless studies, our prayerless work, and our prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray.
And here's the third thing we can learn from Daniel. On a bad day, God brings peace when we're under pressure. You know, it's kind of like that in, in, in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh and how he, he begged God to, to remove that, take it away from him. And God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. It's almost like the peace of God is made perfect when we're under pressure. Because that's when we need it the most, isn't it? They take this 80-year-old man, 85-year-old man, and they toss him into a pit with, with hungry, savage lions and sealed the opening. Now, that's pressure. That's pressure. I think Daniel's enemies fully expected to just see a, a greasy spot on the pavement where Daniel had been the next day. I think that's what they were expecting. But God had other plans. Now I'm going to step out on a limb here and I'm going to predict something. I'm going to predict that nobody in this room this morning is ever going to have to face wild, hungry lions. I'm no prophet, but I feel safe predicting that. But let me tell you something. We will face things that are just as real and just as dangerous in the situations of life and in the circumstances and the pressures that threaten to consume us. Peter would say this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He would tell us to stay alert, stay awake, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I read just this week that, the, that one of the loudest, most terrifying sounds in the jungle is the roar of the lion. A lion's roar can paralyze startled prey so that they just they freeze, they don't even move. The devil, really, truthfully, only has a few weapons left, folks. I mean, at the cross, Jesus pretty much disarmed him. I mean, he, he pulled his teeth, took away his claws. He doesn't have much left, but he does have a roar. And he's out there roaring, and some of us can hear it. Some of us are in the pit with relationship lions. Maybe things are tough in a relationship. Things are hard. There's tension at home. We're having trouble getting along with a family member or a co-worker or a friend. Others of us may be in, in a pit with financial lions. I mean, we're in trouble financially. We, we're barely making the payments. We're worried about the future. We're worried about the stability of our job. Don't know where to turn. And we feel like those lions are creeping up on us, threatening to devour us. Some of us are in a pit with the lions of physical health. Maybe we got a bad diagnosis. What's worse, the doctors don't even know what's wrong with us. Something's roaring. A male lion can grow to be over 10 feet long. A full-grown male can take down a 150-pound gazelle with one paw. And then he can, he can clear three feet, a three-foot fence, with that 150-pound gazelle in his mouth. The lion is one of the most beautiful, awesome, fearsome creatures that God created. And I think that's one of the reasons that the Bible sometimes describes Jesus as a lion. See, the devil prowls around like a lion. Jesus is a lion.
In fact, maybe this will blow your mind. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 says this. One, this is John, the Apostle John speaking. One of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He's talking about Jesus. Now, think back to what we read just a moment ago in verse 22 of Daniel chapter 6. Daniel told King Darius, My God sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions. Now I'm going to jump off from there and I'm going to tell you what I think happened when Daniel was thrown in that lion's den. But see, I think that angel was maybe the angel of the Lord. Was maybe the, the very same angel that walked with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that fiery furnace. I think when Daniel said, my God's angel, he was talking about Jesus. I believe that. In a, in a pride of lions, a group of lions is known as a pride, there's always a dominant male. There's always one male, and all the other lions follow his lead. When he sleeps, they all sleep. When he hunts, they all hunt. When he eats, everybody eats. This dominant male is called the alpha male, and he is, he's large and in charge. I think when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, that there was a new boss of the pride, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he shut the mouths. Not going to eat tonight, boys. Not, this guy, he's, he's old and tough anyway. You're not going to. This is not any good. So you lions just spread out there. One of you is going to be a pillow for him, and it's going to be cold, so he's going to snuggle up next to you. He's, just, he's going to lay right there among you. And, and I think Daniel pulled out his Old Testament and just read between the lions. You offend me. <laughs> I'm sorry for that one, actually. I apologize. Let me ask you this. Who had more peace that night? Daniel in the pit of lions or Darius in the palace? Darius was the one who fought lions all night. He, he fought the lion of conscience and guilt and false accusation. The, the, the Bible says he couldn't rest, he couldn't sleep, he couldn't eat. Daniel slept like a baby. Well, what was the difference? I mean, Darius is the king. But Daniel knows the king of kings, the Lord of lords, sometimes known as the prince of peace. Daniel rested comfortably at peace under pressure. And Darius stays up all night fighting those lions. The lion of the tribe of Judah tamed Daniel's lions. And Jesus is still taming lions today. The bottom line on how to survive a very bad day is Jesus.
Darius rushes out to that lion's pit first thing the next morning, and he finds Daniel alive and well. The Bible said not a scratch on him. And then the worst part of this story for me is when King Darius throws Daniel's accusers and their families into the pit with those lions. And the Bible says it was not a pretty sight. The lions tore them apart before their bodies even hit the floor. So what was the difference between Daniel and those people? What was the real key to surviving the lion's den, to making it through the bad day, living through the bad day instead of being destroyed? Here's the difference. Daniel had a living, personal relationship with the God of heaven. I mean, Daniel carried on a conversation with the God of the universe three times a day. So, of course, when he found himself in the pit, God was there. The accusers didn't know God. There was no peace for them. Life for them became very violent and chaotic and tragic. We have a choice this morning. We can choose to listen to the roar of Satan and be paralyzed with fear and doubt, not knowing where to turn, Not knowing what to do when that bad day hits. Or we can choose the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we choose him, not only will we survive, but we will always be delivered from whatever pit the world throws us into. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.